0: We'll be in Isaiah 44 today, starting in verse 9. I think people are pretty funny, just in general. I think as you get older, you realize that you're a bit funny too, in different ways. Um, And I think God must just have a ball watching everyone live life and not always ha funny, but uh, funny in a sense, that God knows our habits, our behaviors, and like we can say, oh look, it's gonna he's gonna say this or she's gonna respond in this way. And when it happens, there's this like sense of satisfaction, You're like, yep, uh-huh, I knew that was coming. Um or the the story that will be told, or the thing that will happen. And it occurred to me that God knows my future more clearly than I know my remember my past. Like he knows everything. He knows everything about me and that human nature hasn't changed, that we are in a sense predictable. And only God's able to free us from the folly that's within us. Uh, Proverbs 26:11 it puts it succinctly. It says as a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. So you know it's positive in a sense that we're uh, th- there is humor God has created humor, but then there's a sense that it's funny how we can be the same and have victory over something, but go back to it, and and you think, wow, that's weird. That in us God's given us the capacity for logic and to think and to have power over our will to an extent, yet. We often don't make the right choice. We'll make the same wrong choice again and again. And you say, well, why, why does that happen? It's, it's almost humorous. It's almost funny that we could uh, seem to overcome something, but then like the dog, which I always thought having dogs, what's with that? Going back to the vomit. What purpose does it serve? Now, there's probably some vet out there who can tell me exactly why, but that's not the point. The thing is I look at it and go, ew. And, uh, with, as human beings, going back to the old ways, it could be revolting, but it's ironic. And today we're, we have a a little lesson in satire. God uses irony quite often in scripture. Jesus, Elijah, Paul, and here Isaiah, they use satire. And I want to make a distinction, which I have not always made. I failed to make the distinction between satire and sarcasm. The main difference between satire and sarcasm is satire is its irony used to point out folly, but with the end that there would be positive change. Sarcasm is hostile, and it's mockery. It's belittling someone. It's not with any uh, constructive purpose rather than to insult someone else. Uh, another difference between the two is sarcasm is delivered mostly with tone. It's how you say it. But with satire, it's easily understood as satire, whether someone's speaking it or it's written down. So that's helpful for us in the scriptures. So in a nutshell, sarcasm is destructive. Satire can be constructive. Satire works for, pub- for positive change. Sarcasm shows contempt. So we see that God employs some irony here. And it's one of the, I guess, one of the most well-known satirical passages in all of Scripture. So we get to have fun. Uh, Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that it is amazing that you do know our folly and that you seek to correct us. You want us to go in the right way. Thank you that we can trust you, that you do want to build us up. You want to strengthen us. You have good in mind when it comes to our lives. And so we pray, Lord, we would be open to your word. We would hear what your spirit is saying to each one and that we would get the point of what you're saying. How foolish it is that we would go to idols when you are the true God and that we have victory and power through you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, speaking of the foolishness of idolatry. Isaiah 44, 9. It reads, Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. God, through the prophet, he speaks of the folly of idolatry among God's people. Remember, he's not speaking of uh, the Egyptians or the Babylonians here. He's talking about his own people who had God, yet they had fashioned for themselves idols. And of course, we can extend that beyond God's people. But it's really relevant for us as God's people, as his redeemed, to think, well, could I be numbered among those who practice idolatry, have some, some form of idolatry in my life? God had revealed himself as a fountain of living water, but his people had done the equivalent of hewing for themselves broken cisterns that could hold no water. And he focuses not on so much the uselessness of the idol itself, but the the pointlessness in those who make them and who worship them. It says in verse 9 that those who make idols and the idols themselves are useless. Those who make the idol is use, they are useless. And I think God's a pretty good, someone who's made everything with such purpose. And you think of your own body and the systems and the ecosystem of the world and how the, the different parts, they all play a part in the whole. You remove one insect and, and this other part changes. And like God has designed things with a plan and he's saying those who are idolaters are useless. Now useless, it's defined as Not fulfilling or not expected to achieve the intended purpose or desired outcome. So useless, it implies that there is a clear use for the object. And if we are idolaters, then we are useless in that. We will not fulfill the desired purpose for which we have been created by God. Those who give place to idols, you won't achieve that outcome. The plan that God has for you to glorify and honor Him, it won't be attained if we're entrenched in idolatry. Now, I realize we are in a westernized culture. Most of us do not have images that we burn incense to, or we place a plate of food before it, or gold or or brass images or shrines that you would build at great expense. I recognize that we really don't have that. Most of us don't have that in our background. We are reading of carved images here, but the the way this passage is going to be the most meaningful for you is to recognize that I am an idolater, you are an idolater, we are all idolaters in some sense, to call out and define what an idol was in your past and perhaps what an idol is in your life right now. To be open to both of those and to say, well, this was an idol in my life. It's good for us to to identify what the idol is and then this passage will come home because idolatry is a universal fault even as sin is a fault uh, passed down from Adam that we have embraced so idolatry is it's when self sits enthroned in your heart it's raising other things to the place of God something that we have desire for and affections for we get excited about as much or more than God, or the lowering of God to just an ordinary thing. And that's what God's people had done. By creating these images, they lowered God to an image. And it's very possible we've looked to money, we've looked to people, our own health, we've looked to other things when we should have looked only to God. And idolatry idolatry occurs when we seek satisfaction or purpose in anything other than God. It's the thing that you fantasize about. It's a thing that you go to bed thinking about and you wake up being really excited that you get to do something or it's something that you find a sense of comfort in. That is, instead of seeking God, we're looking for a thing. And so those who make idols, those who worship them, they are shamed. Unfortunately, it says the idol feels no shame because it's nothing. And those who are idolaters, they feel no shame because they're useless. They're not able to put it together, as we'll read. Verse 12, the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He begins to describe these workmen fashioning images or idols. The blacksmith, he's turning one in the coals and uh, he's, he's beating it into shape with a hammer. The carpenter, he stretches out his measuring tape and he marks it with chalk and he has a compass so he can make it symmetrical and Make it look lovely because the plan is this is going to be a nice looking image that can be fit for inside the house. Not like firewood you would keep in a pile outside, but something that you would have a place of honor for. A place where it could be uh, admired and and worshipped. What strikes me is how limited man is. He's limited in his strength. He's limited by the size of the wood. He's limited by his measure. If his his compass is only so big, he only has so much chalk, everything about man is limited. And his strength is limited. You know, the blacksmith, he's got to move heavy pieces of metal around. He's got his his forge pumping the bellows, the anvil, big hammers. He's a muscly guy, but he works through lunch, and he's tired. It's hot in there, and he's thirsty. He's like, oh, i got to take a break i got to revive myself because I've been working hard making these images. Man's resources are so easily exhausted, but God, he's completely the opposite. He has all strength. He doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't get hungry. He's not in a bad mood because he needs a snack. He's powerful. He's strong. And he makes things out of his infinite resources and power. God has no limitations. There's no comparison between the greatness of God and what man has made, because man can only work with what he has. God can speak into existence anything. Have you heard of biomimetics or biomimicry? That's a scientific uh, process where scientists will look at designs in nature and seek to perfect Modern technology. Like Velcro, for instance, that was taken from those little burrs that you would get in your socks. Or the stickers that would get in the dog's fur and then have to, well, they looked at that under a microscope and they could see how they were slightly hooked. And they said, what if we made something like that that we could use to hold things together? Scientists cannot improve nature. They are not trying to develop a better silk for spiders. It's already perfect. So what they try to do is they look at the chemistry of silk and they say, how can we make better fiber? And that's how Kevlar came about. It's because they took something that God has made and he's made it perfect. And they're not going to start a campaign to get the spiders to use this new and improved silk. They can't touch that. They can't make it better. But we can make better our technology through it. So... Yeah, you can't give a gecko more grippy feet. It, we look at those feet and go, how do they work? How can they climb on glass? We want that for us, right? So man's resource is limited. We're, we're at best copyists, but God, he is a creator. He's made it all. Verse 14. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it, and he makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. So the satire is cranking up a bit here. He says the man chooses out a tree. There's all these varieties of trees. He plants a tree. He counts on God to water it and nourish it. He cuts it down and he uses part of it to bake his dinner to bake his bread and to warm himself, and the other half, he's like, "Oh, I can make an image out of this. I can make a god to worship. So half of it's seen as fit for the fire, and the other half is now his god. That's pretty ironic. Hard to imagine. That man could have such understanding to be able to grow things and to cultivate, and yet at the same time, not to even examine his own heart and the hypocrisy of his choices he, he can be more foolish than a senseless beast at least beasts do what god has told them to do where they will migrate at a given time they are able to procreate and to to fly birds fly and fish swim and they do it very well they do it perfectly And yet man, who was made and created in the image of God to glorify God and to know God, he begins to prostitute himself to all these other things and does not consider his ways. The one who can consider his ways doesn't consider his ways. There's real potential that we could have pride in our ability to grow things rather than praising God who causes things to grow. There is potential we will worship food or our own stomachs more than the God who gave us life. We can be lifted up with pride because we know the difference between a cypress and a pine and an oak. Not praise God that he created such diversity. So when the man cuts down that tree, he did it for a purpose. It was going to suit his needs. He's like, I'm going to cut down that tree. Um, not just to show I'm tough and strong, but he had a, a reason for cutting it down. Some trees make better firewood than others. Some make better hardwood for, for carving. And even as one, as the man chose to chop down one tree and to carve an image according his, to his design, we choose our own idols. Usually an idol is something that was good given us by God, but we've bent it out of shape. We're using it for the wrong things. We always get something out of an idol, but we're left worse off than before. Think about the children of Israel for a moment. One of the first things they did, Moses brings them through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. He goes up to speak with God on Mount Sinai. And what do the people do? Almost immediately, they say, make us a god. He's like, okay, give me your gold. They gave him their gold. He made this molded image, and they, they worshiped it. And they made it central to their celebration. And that's something that can let us know what an idol is in my life. It's something that is central to your celebration. It's something that's very important to you because you're getting something out of it. There's some sort of enjoyment or fulfillment that you get. The thing you celebrate most could be your idol. I'm not saying that anything that you enjoy in life is your idol. But there's a potential it could become your idol. I'm reminded of a scene in The Return of the King where a a fishing trip turned deadly because the ring of power was found. So Deagle, he finds this ring in the river and Smeagol sees it and goes, oh, give that to me for my birthday. You know, I want it. And Deagle's like, no, I'm not giving it to you. And they start a little push and shove and it ends up with Smeagol strangling Deagle to death. It's a pretty... Rough scene, but when it's over, almost immediately he Deagle breathes his last, and he with trembling fingers, Smeagol goes for the ring, and he holds it. And there's an expression on his face that I find difficult to describe, but it's a it's a face I cannot make, but it's a feeling he conveys that I have felt when you hold a thing that is precious to you, and it's not God, but you love it, and it curses you, and you you love it and you hate it at the same time. There's that thing idolatry does because it's not God, but it's now become your God. And the things in this world can enrapture us and they can have our affections. And so we must be mindful. Does God have my affections? Do I get excited about him? Do I anticipate with great joy time spent with him? Verse 18 They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, no is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his own soul, nor say, is there a lie? Is there not a lie in my right hand? Idolaters, this passage is telling us, are without understanding. Verse 18, it says that those who choose to believe a deception will remain without sight or understanding. So if you choose to trust a lie, if you choose to believe the deception, God will see that you remain deceived. It's like if you intentionally close your eyes to God's truth, God will allow you to remain in darkness. right? You're the one closing your eyes. He, he has given himself as the light of the world. So if you don't want to see the truth, if you don't want to walk in the light, God's not going to force you to. God is true, he cannot lie, and he should not be blamed when people prefer to reject the truth and love lies. This actually happened. This dynamic happened in Israel. It says in Jeremiah 531, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. He's like, my priests, they're, they're just throwing their weight around, my people, they love it. They love to elevate a man. They love the false prophecies. You're very excited about these things. So those who believe deception will remain deceived. Idolatry blinds us to the truth, and it says we will be deceived from the right way. It says he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. So if you're deceived, you will not be walking in the right way. You'll be on the wrong path every time. Matthew Poole, he wrote this in his commentary. And such passages as these are added in such cases to give an account of the prodigious madness of sinners herein, because as they willfully shut their own eyes and harden their own hearts, so God judiciously blinds and hardens them and gives them up to believe lives, and then it is no wonder if they fall into such dotages. Now, dottages, that means old and weak, kind of senile, forgetful, unable to help themselves. God's complaint was a people that he put logic and the ability to think and to reason. They flatly rejected him, his truth, his revelation, and they chose lies instead. Like they made a conscious choice to believe a lie. When God is the truth and he gave them the truth. Man didn't think how inconsistent or irrational his decisions were. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous to say, uh, this is my firewood and this half is my God. I'm going to bow down to a block of wood. And then it says, God's people here chose to feed on ashes. Not a very wholesome meal. Um, God has provided himself, Jesus, the bread of life. To feed on ashes would be a really poor choice. There's no nutrition there. From what I've read, the ash that's in, like, from wood, that's in your fireplace, there's no nutritional content. You can amend some soil with it, perhaps, but uh, there's not a gourmet meal hanging out in your fireplace right now. So that's not where you should go for lunch. I just suggest you eat elsewhere. Nothing there that's good for you, right? Feeding on ashes, messy bad yeah you get some on your clothes and you're not happy about it how much more in your mouth it's just disgusting an awful meal and this is why we need to consider our ways and it made me think well how much of my life is unconsidered how much of my life had i not really given thought to because this guy wasn't giving thought to it that this combustible god he's using to cook his dinner with, or, or the wood, the same wood he cooked his dinner with he made a god out of, and he worshipped it. And it's like, that just doesn't make sense at all. And we all agree with that. And yet, it's kind of funny, not ha-ha funny, but when we look at ourselves we can see shades or pictures of the exact same thing. So all of our lives, we have to come to a place where we're saying, Lord, every aspect of my life, all the things that I love, they're on the table for discussion and correction. You have the right to 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 ask me to give anything to you. And I'll do it because I'm yours. I know you love me and have my best in mind. We have to come to that place. And if there's, if there's a few things or something in your life, you're like, well, no, that's kind of off topic. Like that's not on the table. Red lights, ding, ding, ding. Like you should be thinking, okay, what, why is that hard for me to give up? Why is that hard for me to even talk about the potential of giving it up? It's because we're idolaters in our nature. That's, that's why. And God, we can't have the right relation with God. We're in idolatry. And if we love God because He first loved us, then we have to consider. Verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Until now, it's been pretty bleak. The people are idolatrous. They're not considering their ways at all. But now there's this brightness, this new day by God's grace, and it just pops. It just comes to us. That there was no hope in the idol. There's no hope in in that person without understanding to even know the right way to go. But God's like, You have no hope or help in the idol, but in me you have hope, help, and infinitely more, because you have me. God claimed Israel as his own. He says, I formed you as my servant, and if you are Christ's today, he's the one who made you born again. He's the one who has designed you and has made you for a specific purpose, for his glory, and he calls you as his own child and his faithful servant. He's saying to you, you are my servant. I haven't forgotten you. You may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. I've washed you of all your sin. Your your sins have been blotted away. There's no memory of them. And notice the order. He says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. He does not say, return to me so I can redeem you. No, he's already redeemed you. So he says, return to me. because I've redeemed you, and live in that way. Live as someone who has been redeemed. Until now, you haven't been living that way, but consider your ways and begin to live in the way as I've commanded. And so, as Jesus, he's paid our price. If you are my fellow Christian, we should stop sinning. We should burn our idols to ash, not eat them. And be excited to seek and to know and to follow Jesus. Because we're the ones who build on sinking sand without even knowing it. God knows that. But he hasn't forgotten us. That's why he takes the time to speak to us. We have to admit that we've trusted in other things. We've looked to other things for excitement and satisfaction and fulfillment other than God. And quite often, it's not until we lose that thing or there's the, we've been deprived of something when we realize that we've actually been looking to that thing for joy, for happiness. And uh, it's like when I had no money, excuse me, I'll, I'll go back. When I had money, I would say, oh, I'm not trusting in money. I don't find my security in money. But when I didn't have money, then I realized I was actually trusting in money. There was a degree of security I was getting from having money. I didn't know that until I didn't have it. And it can be like that with many things, that you don't think that something's an idol until it's taken away and, and you realize, oh, I really was trusting in that thing. I was looking to that career. I was looking for security and ease uh, in other things rather than God. We can find that satisfaction and security in so many things other than God. And, and I'm not saying we can. God's saying we do. And that's really the point. Even still, God's not going to reject us. He's not going to disown us. He's saying, I made you. I have purchased you. I love you. You're in my plans. So return to me. And then he he like explodes in this exhortation of praise. He says, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Right As Chris was saying, God has done the work. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Praise. It's such a fitting response of every heart redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. No matter how low we sink, we can always lift God up because he is an exalted awesome God he is so trustworthy praiseworthy we can rejoice in God's goodness and his grace no matter how we feel or the things the painful things in our lives I was uh, driving to my baseball game yesterday and have some aches and pains which is normal but just thinking you know Lord you're not like me and I'm so glad I can be ruled by how I feel my emotions, but it's in my weakness and my pain that I realize that you're strong, that you're not like this. You're not broken down and weary. You don't need to have a boost of energy to play well. You're not sore the next day. Like You're so good in every way. And even in our pain, that is when we can turn it to praise. Say, God, thank you that you have bought me and you work in and through me, that you speak to me, and that you remind me through pain that you are the one who heals, and you're a restorer of my soul. In faith, we're called to bless and acknowledge God's rule and ownership, and just thinking about that, that God, he formed you. You may not like yourself, but God loves you just the way you are, because he made you that way. And I'm not talking about the fallen nature part of you. But I'm talking about who he intended you to be. Not who you are today, in a sense, but ultimately. And he sees through all of our problems and our weaknesses. And he knows how he's made us and his plans he has for us. God freely chose to redeem us despite our idolatry. He was wise in that he made a way he could justify us and then at the end he he was willing to pay with his son and and he went through and he said i will do it it's not just that i can i'm wise enough to figure it out but i'm willing to and he did through jesus christ verse 24 thus says the lord your redeemer and he who formed you from the womb i am the lord who makes all things who stretches out the heavens all alone who spreads abroad the earth by myself who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad Who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. That is authority there. At the beginning, it's something we we read and can just gloss over, but he says, thus says the Lord. Isn't it cool that God speaks to us? That he, he would even take time to speak to us, directly, directly speak to us. The prophet Elijah, he didn't even come out to the illustrious Syrian commander Naaman when he came to his door with a whole troop of people and he sent a messenger to the door. Like he didn't even leave his room to go talk to this general and yet God, he speaks directly to us. God. Jesus has come to earth and he has walked among us and we have held, it says, what our, our eyes have seen and our hands have handled the very word of God. Jesus made flesh. And he says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. Is there anyone else who knows you like this? Your parents did not form you in the womb. Your father sired you, your mother carried you, but they did not know you. But he says, I formed you in the womb. I know you. No one else knows you like that. The God who made all things, who stretched out the heavens, who said, I spread abroad the earth by myself. I didn't need anyone's help. I've got things to say about your future. And he starts laying it down here. He says, hey, you shall be inhabited, and the foundation will be laid. And um, Talks of Cyrus here. I love that he's speaking of rebuilding the temple before it was even knocked over. He's talking about building a new foundation, building on a good foundation before the first one was raised by the Babylonians. And so he's looking to the redemption. He's looking to the conclusion. He's looking at the end result of what he's going to accomplish through this siege and through the temple being torn down. He, he's not even focused on that. He's saying, hey, I've got a future and I've got a future for you. The one that's formed you, he has a future for you. He has constructive plans to revive and restore even when your life seems like it's falling apart and that's how it was for God's people at this time. History backs the biblical account that Babylon would fall before Cyrus and and I want to emphasize that. It's not the other way around. It's not that the Bible confirms history. History confirms the scripture. The scripture is perfect and true. It's not history that the Bible lines up with. It's the other way around. History always lines up with the Bible because the Bible is the fixed thing. Towards the end of the Israelite captivity, the Persians, so 70 years in captivity in Babylon. The Persians had become a uh, almost a global empire by that point. They had conquered all of Western Asia. Ancient Babylon, it was situated on the Euphrates River that flowed through with these impenetrable walls. They were massive. There's different accounts to how big they were, but forget trying to go over those walls. They were they were thick and tall. Now, after the Battle of Opus, the Persians, they besieged the capital. And you see where it says, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Interesting, that was the way that the Persians were able to take Babylon is they diverted the water of the Euphrates during a peace. It was a celebration, a festival. And... Belshazzar's getting wasted with all of his nobles and they're drinking and, and uh, Daniel gives his prophecy. And as that's going on, under the cover of night, the Persian army came under the wall through where the river had been and they took the city. And it was then in 539 BC that Cyrus was proclaimed king of Babylonia. It was written in Daniel 531. It says, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So that was a, a different guy. But uh, Cyrus, he was someone that God had spoken of from the beginning. 200 years before Cyrus lived, God mentions him here by name. And it is apparent through some of the historians, Josephus in particular, that Cyrus later read Isaiah and was very like empowered to say, oh man, I got to do this now. Because this is what I've been made to do. This is why I've been created. To redeem God's people as his anointed. And to send them back into Jerusalem and have it rebuilt. So he got pretty inspired by reading the Bible. The ancient scriptures. About how he should live his life. What he was supposed to do. Now in Isaiah, since it continues with Cyrus. Isaiah 45, 1-4. It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus... "...whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel." For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. How about that? That's pretty awesome. He's calling Cyrus the Great by his name before Cyrus even knows anything about God. Before he was born, he had a purpose for Cyrus before birth. He formed him for a reason. According to God's word, he did subdue nations. He built the empire by conquering first the Median Empire, the Lydian Empire, and eventually the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He didn't know God, but God called him by his name. The Babylonians shut their gates, but he opened double doors through the river to go right into the city. And he said, I did it for the sake of my people. Cyrus is going to release them from their captivity. pretty cool how would you like to to have your name in the bible you know it was written you know two thousand years ago and there there's your name it's like i know you i'm calling you i've got a plan for your life a purpose for which i've created you would that get you a little fired up that god's like mentioning you by name and and maybe a couple of fathers you know like him, the son of, the son of, just to make sure that you know that he's talking to you, not just some other Cyrus. He's talking to you. See, I believe that God's speaking to us all today in his word. We have here this contrast between the foolish man who makes his idol and he bows down to it and the God who forms man to do his purpose and his will. Who calls them by name who forms them from the womb. Think of it. The God who formed you from the womb, he knows your name. He knows the plans he has for you. Even before you knew him, God had plans for Cyrus as his anointed. It was going to be a foreshadowing of the Messiah who would set the captives free. Jesus Christ, he would give his life as a ransom for sinners. Cyrus and his throne, they have since perished. But Jesus has established an eternal kingdom that will never end. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, a redeeming God. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6, 3 through 5, we'll read about the decree that Cyrus issued after being established as king. So, Cyrus, in his first year, so he was highly motivated. In his first year being king, this was not a back burner thing for him. It's not like, well, let's get our borders situated or anything. He, he was going to obey God. Ezra 6. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. It's before Psalms. Maybe that'll help. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. We used to do that in Sunday school. used to do jump rope to the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through. I recommend it. It's good for your health and your mental fitness as well. Ezra 6, starting in verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. So in this first year of being king, King Cyrus gives this decree. He goes straight to business with this heavenly mandate, and he says, let's build that temple again. All at the king's expense, at my expense. I'm paying for it all. Massive stones, timber, it's going to be huge pretty big and he says all the gold and silver articles indeed the ones that belshazzar had been drinking out of and getting drunk when he was killed that night they were all to be taken back to the temple so that temple worship could be restored it was about sacrifice it was about god's name being praised now if you'll turn earlier in your scripture ezra 3 10 and 11 The reason why you have to go back to read about it is because they had been given this command and people of the land resisted them. Uh, started all this red tape bureaucracy and so the work was ceased. And as the Jews were working, they said, hey, go check the archives. We were given this command to build this temple. And, and then they found that, what Cyrus had said. So we're kind of having a flashback, as it were. Flash forward, I guess you could say. So Ezra 3, 10, 11, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So it's just celebration. And they praised the Lord responsively Of all the good things God had done, they said, Praise be to God. His mercy endures forever. He is good. And I love that. They praised the Lord according to the ordinance of David. He's like, you guys got to praise God. Praise God. And all the people shouted. Now there's no temple standing in Jerusalem today passages in the new testament reveal that we as christians we are all the temple of the holy spirit you as christian you are the temple of the holy spirit because the holy spirit dwells within you the scriptures say there's great rejoicing over one sinner who repents and how lovely it is when god has laid a foundation of jesus christ and we begin to build our lives on top of that new foundation And we begin to offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto God. Not the blood of goats and bulls, but we give ourselves as living sacrifices unto God. To the God who loves us and gave himself for us. So since salvation has come to your heart through the gospel, how can you responsively praise God? There are some on the day of judgment who will say, Lord, Lord. We've done many things in your name when they're facing eternity in hell. And he will say, Jesus will say to those idolaters, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. Yet there's that beauty if we will repent and come to him. God has grand, grand plans for your life. He has a future that is unshakable on his foundation. So Christian, As the temple of the Holy Spirit, when you look inside that temple, what's going on in there? What is the condition of the temple? Now, if you'll look back, and I love this study, I really want to get more into it. I might just do it today. Over the years, the condition of the temple was very different. There were times where there were actual idols that were brought into the temple. Idols in the temple that they would worship and sacrifice to. There was a period where the book of the law had been lost. And they're just cleaning out the rubbish. And they're like, hey, we found the book of the law, who's back here in some storeroom somewhere. And and the, no one had heard it for years. And they read it to the king, and he tore his clothes. Because he, he hadn't, you were supposed to actually copy the law. Every king was, the first thing they're supposed to do is to copy it by hand. So you'd have a copy of your own. But the book of the law was lost. There were times when the doors were nailed shut. You couldn't even get in. The doors wouldn't swing and they had to be repaired. There were times when the light of the menorah went out at night. They were supposed to keep it burning continually, but they allowed the flames to go down. There were times where sacrifices hadn't been given for years. There hadn't been a sacrifice. There was times where the altar of incense had not been used and because the doors were shut. There was no prayer. There was nothing going on in the temple. There was a time when Tobiah... An enemy of God and Israel was living in the temple. In the storeroom where they were supposed to be storing the hallowed things of God, there's Tobiah with his bed and his nightstand and uh, using the Wi-Fi or whatever he was doing. There is always good reason for us to do some house cleaning, some housekeeping in the temple of the Lord because God knows the condition of the temple. He knows what it's like in there. He knows if the book of the law has departed, if it's getting a bit dusty. He knows if the light is shining. He knows if the prayers are rising to him. He he knows it very well. And he knows when it's time, there was a time when there was so much rubbish in the temple, they couldn't do the work of the Lord. It took them eight days to clear it out with all these men working. So it was a process. And each of us, we need to embark on that process. And may it be today. Because the temple was not built as a tourist attraction. It was not so people could see a physical representation of the glory or the riches of God. It was a place of worship. It was a place where God was to be worshipped. Your body on this earth is not for hire. It's not a holiday accommodation. It is a place of worship and praise unto God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Jesus is the foundation. It has been all paid for at God's expense. Out of the king's treasury, you have been made. Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has called you by name, he has formed you from the womb. Let's not be like the dog who returns to its vomit, a fool repeating his folly. But glorify God by throwing out the idols, by consecrating ourselves to him again, as living sacrifices, that we might stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you that you are so good to us and you've given us this relevant message for all of us today. Lord, I pray you would show us the condition of the temple of our bodies that you know very well. We pray, Lord, you would reveal to us uh, our need to repent of any idolatry, that we would not hold on to idols, we wouldn't uh, leave our lives unconsidered. But we would praise you, Lord, for you have called us, you have formed us, You have known us and you are faithful to us. And you say, uh, return to me for I have redeemed you. Thank you, Lord, that you have paid the price. You have done the work and that we can rejoice in you today. Lord, may you send your spirit upon us in power that we might have your wisdom and know your heart. That we might be filled with the fullness of God and stand perfect and complete in your will. In Jesus' name, amen.